And there ends the reading, Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And as I usually do, I invite our sermon audio listeners, if you've not read chapter 4 of Revelation, please do so. I will be going back through it briefly in terms of various passages, but it would be helpful if you have already read the chapter. It's a short one, only 11, 12 verses. The title of today's message, It's Not About Me. Many of you here today may know the name of Thomas Aquinas. He was a brilliant theologian and philosopher of the Roman Catholic Church of the Middle Ages. He died in the year 1274 A.D. He was known for having created a massive work of theology and history and philosophy called in Latin the Summa Theologica. And in that work, he tried to gather into one coherent whole all of the truth about everything. A pretty massive undertaking, right? He tried to bring together the truth about anthropology, science, ethics, psychology, political theory, theology, as ordained and ruled over by Almighty God. Can you imagine undertaking such an endeavor? But something happened that prevented him from finishing that major work. And he he did, I don't know how much more he would have done, but what he did do consumes numbers of volumes in English. I have no idea. 10, 15, 20 volumes. While he was conducting a church service, he had a mystical experience of the majesty of God. Now, I'm not at this point concerned to address the legitimacy of that experience, uh, the, the faults of the Roman Catholic Church. All that's out there. That's fine. But listen, following that experience, whatever it was, he, he suddenly realized that all of his efforts to describe God fell so far short that he decided never to write again. Now, he had a personal secretary, a man, another monk named Reginald, who assisted him in his writing and research. And that man tried to convince him to change his mind. But Aquinas told him, I can do no more. Such things have been revealed to me that all I have written seems as so much straw. Thomas Aquinas was then and is now considered one of the greatest of all human intellects to have ever lived. But he learned that he could not fathom the greatness of God. Now, in chapter 4 of the book of Revelation, the Lord reveals his greatness and his majesty to the apostle John. Now, let's be reminded that John wrote this letter while in exile on the island of Patmos, in the, off the coastline of what's modern-day Turkey or Greece. And he wrote under the direct influence of Christ and the Holy Spirit. I believe, some people differ with this, of course, but I believe sometime writing between the year A.D. 64 to 68. Now, in the order of things, the first five chapters of Revelation were written to prepare the reader for the scenes of impending judgment that were about to be revealed as the book progresses. As a matter of fact, the scenes of judgment cover roughly chapters 6 through 19. That makes up the largest section of the book of Revelation. So the question naturally arises, what's the judgment all about? And have mercy, we've spent the better part of the 20th century hearing our dispensational friends tell us what they think it's all about, and they've been completely wrong, of course. But in chapter 1, John tells his readers that the events he will describe are near. They are about to happen. They're coming soon. And he meant soon in his day. 
The theme of the entire book of Revelation is given to us in chapter 1, verse 7, where we read, Behold, he is coming with clouds, meaning the Lord Jesus, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, all the tribes of the earth or the land. Now, let me stop right there. These are the identifying marks about the timing of these events and to whom this is written. Even Abraham will see him, they who pierced him. Who pierced him? That's, there's a very clear answer to that question. And all the tribes. Where, where does this tribes come from? Where do we think about tribes in God's word? They will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. So in verse 7, he made it very clear who were the main recipients of that judgment coming. It is they who pierced him. Meaning the apostate Jews and their leaders in Jerusalem. This was the event that the Lord prophesied. It's called the, the Olivet Discourse, because he, he did it on the Mount of Olives. We've studied that before. Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, all three of the Synoptic Gospels record that discourse. And the best way to understand that discourse is that he was prophesying a then-soon-coming destruction of Jerusalem and the annihilation of Old Covenant Israel. In chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, we've read these letters to the seven churches in Asia. These were seven real churches facing persecution for their testimony and witness for Christ Jesus. John was writing to them to show what must shortly take place. Now, we read in the letter to the church at Philadelphia, the Lord warned them. This is chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. He says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. That hour, notice this, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, meaning the oikumene, the known world of the day, the Roman Empire, to test those who dwell upon the land, the earth. I am coming quickly, he says, hold fast that you have in order that no one take your crown. So in the first three chapters, John sees a vision of the Lord Jesus Ruling history in his church, the real life world of that day and time. But now, just before the terrible scenes of judgment are revealed to John, he is given yet another vision. Now, this vision transports him to above history, into the very presence of the throne room of our Heavenly Father. So, look again at verse 1. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. So, in those words are the imagery that dominates most of the book of Revelation. The Lord commands him to come up here. Now, that doesn't mean that John is to be bodily lifted up off the ground. Rather... It means that his mind, his consciousness, is lifted up spiritually to a new realm of reality. He's taken, in that sense, into a vision of heaven itself. And he sees that symbolized as a door, an open door. And this is maybe the third or fourth time, just in these chapters, that the book of Revelation has used reference to the idea of a door. But he noticed, he says, things that must take place the word must. Everything that takes place in this earth is first transacted and set forth by God in heaven. Human history is moving toward a definite transition point. Our faith may falter and we may become confused and misguided, but God's plan is secure and certain. 
he has decreed that all things will come about as he has planned it. As our shorter catechism in question, and especially answer number seven, tells us the decrees of God are his eternal purpose. According to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory, he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. But now the Lord tells John that he is about to be shown things that must take place after this. Well, after what? What is he talking about? Well, it refers to the events that were just on the horizon for John and his fellow believers in that day and time. That's why there's an urgency. The lo- the, there's a locality, a local localizing of these events. Now look at verse 2. He says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one, in the New King James at least is capitalized, one sat on the throne. So the first thing that he sees is a throne and the Almighty One who's seated there. Now, the Greek term here, thronos, is used here more than any other book in the New Testament in these verses. And you and I are somewhat of a disadvantage today because as we read this, we don't know anything about a king and a throne. We've never had that experience in our lifetime. It's not part of our day-to-day living in this country. And I guess that 99% of us have no idea of what it would be like to live in a land where there is a king who meets out justice and mercy, who makes laws and rescinds laws. Historically, and even to this day, when a king is on his throne, he is there for what we would call judicial or legal reasons. In ancient times, right up to the present, when a king was called upon to dispense justice, to make laws, to to hand out the death sentence, to to punish an evildoer, uh, to make decrees, he didn't do that while he was riding a horse somewhere. He didn't do that at the lunch table. He sat on his throne in an official capacity, the session of his decree. You know, in the Older Testament reading we heard earlier from Psalm 9, we heard how the Lord was referred to as dispensing justice from his judicial heavenly throne. Psalm 9, 7, but Yahweh the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. And then in Psalm 103, verse 19 The Lord Yahweh has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. The idea of ruling over all is a judicial idea. It is a political, legal idea of power and sovereign authority. Now look at verse 3 of Revelation 4. He who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. Now some of you may have a translation that says carnelian. The Greek word literally here translates sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. John is not really able to describe Almighty God in a way that we might describe another person. He can only reach for words that tell us what God looked like by comparison. Jasper is a transparent stone, sort of like a diamond. And it symbolizes the infinite perfection of God the purity and dazzling brightness of his holiness. Now, the sardius stone is a blood-red stone, and the symbolism there is of the severity of God's justice and wrath against all evil and evildoers. John describes this emerald rainbow around the throne of God, and here, once again, we're taken right back to the Older Testament and the book of Genesis. First, we read there of God's rainbow as a covenant sign of promise following the flood. 
These three precious stones, jasper, sardius, and emerald, taken together, they really symbolically add up to the gospel of the kingdom, what it symbolizes. Because there's the holiness of God, there's his hatred of sin, and the death penalty for the sinner, but also there is the love and grace and mercy given to us in Christ Jesus. That is the message of having true peace with God, my friends. The same God who destroyed the old world by a flood, by a flood and then promised his old covenant people that he would not bring the judgment that way anymore. The same God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He represents himself here in these three precious stones. Now also in verse 4, there's the reference to the 24 elders. They represent the church of God. You see, in Ephesians chapter 2 and already in Revelation chapter 1 and 3, Believers are said to be seated with Christ in heavenly places. Now, we know in Holy Scripture, generally speaking, the term translated elder refers to a leader in the family or a leader in the church. And the number 24 is significant because that symbolizes the fullness or the wholeness of the church as it encompasses both the Old and New Testaments. Because in the Older Testament, the church consisted of the 12 tribes of Israel. But now in the new covenant order, under Christ, it consists of the 12 apostles who were the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. Together, those two constitute this full-orbed picture of God's covenant in all ages, moving from the older covenant and been developing into and given its fullest expression and final expression in the new covenant, in Christ Jesus. Now, back in chapter 1, the Lord declared that we who follow him are a kingdom and are priests to serve God the Father. That's the picture John has shown here. Christians are a kingdom of priests who reign with Christ. Now in verse 5, John, he struggles to describe what he is seeing and hearing here. The lightnings and the thunders and the voices speak of the awesome majesty and power of Almighty God. They also, like so much else that's gone before us in this book, Call us back yet again to the Older Testament. Now, in this case, they call to mind the book of Exodus, where the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt. The seven lamps burning with fire are said to represent the seven spirits of God. We've encountered that imagery before. We know that means the Holy Spirit in his fullness. And then these fantastic creatures that are described are parallel to Daniel's vision, where he saw a similar vision of these four fantastic creatures. Then John says, and look at verses 6 to 8, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal in the midst of the throne, and the throne there were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back, and then he describes them all, and then he says, They do not cease, at the end of verse 8, they do not cease or rest day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now notice in those verses the sea that is in front of God's throne. Separating God from all that is before him. You know, as much as God loves us, and he does, he cares for us. He is totally different from us in holiness and righteousness. So then, in verses 6 through 8, we see these creatures that never cease their worship of the Lord. And then notice what the 24 elders do. 9 to 11, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. 
and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. My friends, this is the pattern of the church's worship, or it ought to be. This is ritual. This is ceremony. We don't have to reinvent worship every Sunday. I mean, apart from the fact that there is a liturgical order that has characterized the worship of the church of Jesus Christ going back to the beginning. Apart from that, we have the clear evidence in Scripture about the, the liturgical, dialogical nature of worship. Ritual and ceremony, these are a part of it. You know, uh, it might be interesting for you to contemplate this. There are churches, of course, that uh, eschew ritual and ceremony. They, they think, no, 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 that's, that's too much like the Catholics do or the Orthodox Church or whatever it may be. And we want to be spontaneous and, and worship in the Spirit. I mean, the truth is they end up creating a ritual of a different sort. But nevertheless, you get the point they're trying to make, I guess. They wouldn't be worshiping as we do in our church. And what is interesting, some years ago, there was a big controversy regarding the subject of the Masonic Lodge and Freemasonry. Just bear with me. You may wonder, what in the world has this got to do with it? I'm going to tell you. Uh, Some of you may remember that in the PCUS and also in the early days of the PCA, there was a controversy about the subject of Freemasonry too. But in the, um, I believe it was the late 1990s, There's a big blow-up about this subject in the Southern Baptist Convention. And the reason it was such a big blow-up is because, not only here in the South, but across these United States, at that time at least, the overwhelming majority of the members of Masonic Lodges were known to be and confessed to be and identified as Baptists. And you say, well, why is that significant? Well, at least one person, I think, correctly theorized that one of the attractions, whether it would be articulated this way or not, one of the attractions to the Masonic Lodge by people like this is that in most Baptist churches, you have no ritual. You have no ceremony. But God has so created us and ordained us that we are to be ritualistic, ceremonially oriented creatures. It's built into our DNA, and something's going to take that place if the proper worship of God is not there. There will be ritual. I guess you could argue that people who go to NFL football games on Sundays and pack these stadiums with 80, 90, 100,000 people, that's a type of ritual. There are things that go on in these games and and these uh, uh, three or four hours of American football that is similar to gathering in a great cathedral and worship. It has its own elements like that. But this pattern is shown to us here in Scripture. God alone is to be the focus of our worship because He alone is worthy. And too much of what passes for worship in the church today is not only not ceremonial or ritualistic in the best sense of those terms, it is not focused on God and His glory. Wait, you mean it's not supposed to be all about me? No. And the worship of many of these churches is focused on man and his needs. It's focused on human-centered emotion and sentiment. But the worship we see here in heaven is nothing like that. Notice what the elders do. They cast down their crowns and they bow down. They bow before the awesome presence and glory of the only wise God and creator of all things. And I wonder today, have you ever bowed before the presence and glory of God? 
You see, some of us might have a hard time being in God's presence when that time comes because we don't know how to bow. But for some folks, an even greater problem is that we don't know how to focus on God's glory because we prefer to focus on ourselves. The, uh, the great English preacher John Henry Jowett often told the story about when he attended the coronation of King Edward VII of England. Now, this was in the early 1900s. Lots of bowing and respect was shown as nobility from all over Europe entered the great cathedral where the coronation was to be. But when the king arrived, a great hush came over the audience, and every eye was on him. No longer did the dignitaries of lower rank receive the gaze and interest of the people. All the people fixed their eyes and their attention on the king. My friends, that is the way it should be in our lives and in our worship. Christ is king. The Lord is the sovereign ruler and creator of all things. I'm afraid that some people think that going to a church service is not much different than going to a music concert. Okay, let, you know, we could say there are some commonalities, there are some similarities. I mean, you usually do drive your car to church and to a, a music concert venue. You do assemble with other people of similar interest and, and like mine. And your attention is generally focused on the front of the building or the hall or the Colosseum. But for all of these broad similarities, going to church and going to a concert are of major, major difference. For one thing, you don't have to buy a ticket to go to church, at least not any true church of Jesus Christ. I, I suppose there's some churches that do that. We don't serve snacks during church. But the most important difference is this. The purpose of church is not for entertainment. And that's where a lot of believers have the wrong idea. They think that what goes on in the worship service is for their sake, to entertain, to enthrall, and to excite them. But as we have seen here in Scripture today from God's Word, that attitude is mistaken. As one Christian writer put it, and I quote, Worship is not meant to please me or to make me feel good or to meet my criteria, my standards, my tastes. Worship is for Almighty God. I am not to be the center of worship. God is to be at the center. <clears throat> now, I suppose that if you ask the average evangelical Christian today and put them on the spot about this, they would deny that they think the worship ought to be all about them and that it's an issue of seeking entertainment. I think that can be proven pretty easily false when you have people who sort of church hop and, you know, especially if that's their background, that this type of broad evangelical, what we would call contemporary worship. They'll, maybe they're new in town and they go to one church where a lot of their friends go, and oh, yeah, that's not too bad. But then they go to the big megachurch where they've got the grade A level professionally paid musicians with the fog machines and all this kind of stuff. And man, they're bowled over by that. So that's where they end up going. It's obvious what the preferences are based on. As Revelation 4 has shown, true worship gives God alone center stage. And it has shown us something of the greatness of God and that that greatness is something hard for us to grasp. John did his best here to describe what he saw. And it is breathtaking and stunning, to say the least. I don't know how we can even come close to getting a, a handle on that, but I'm going to try. Think about the size of something that you can easily understand and you compare it with something that you cannot so easily grasp. For example, the largest animal on earth 
is said to be the blue whale. I've read that the, just the tail fins of this giant mammal is larger than most of the land animals on the earth. But a blue whale isn't anywhere near as large as a giant mountain. So if you were to take 100 blue whales, and if you had a huge glass jar large enough to hold them all, well, you could put over a million of those jars full of blue whales inside Mount Everest. But Mount Everest isn't anywhere near as vast as the earth. And if you were to line up a hundred Mount Everests beside one another, it would look just like a whisker on the face of the earth. My friends, the creator of the world is God Almighty. And with a word, he spoke it all into being. And he is present everywhere and beyond it. He upholds it with his mighty power. And he alone is to be the focus of our worship and our praise. Because he alone is worthy of it. Let us pray.